On the first ever episode of the On Deck podcast, we sit down with Vasu Kulkarni, founder of Crossover and partner at Courtside VC, and Deepin Parrot, who runs Courtside with Vasu, to talk about the sports startup landscape. Vasu and Deepin explain that building a venture-backed business in the sports industry requires a potential to scale. You can build a business selling something to 120 teams for $30,000, $50,000, $100,000 a year, but you can't build a venture-backed business doing that. Identify some interesting areas of the landscape outside of the major four sports. That's a massive market. Youth sports is a significantly more exciting opportunity today than going after pro sports. And give some advice for aspiring sports entrepreneurs. Really, really focus on your core user base, your power users, to find a way where they can't live without your product. Vasu and Deepin are joined by host Will Flaherty, the VP of Growth at SeatGeek. Entering the on-deck circle now, venture capital and sports tech. Welcome to the first ever episode of the On Deck podcast. I'm Will Flaherty of SeatGeek. wanted to take a quick moment just to tell you about what we're doing here. We're trying to create a new podcast that's going to touch on interesting topics in sports technology, really looking at how technology is impacting the way uh, that that we understand sports, follow sports, um, engage with with the sports that we all love. And this comes from uh, the Undeck Conference, an or- event we've organized over the past few years um, from, the, from the team at SeatGeek. And you know, we want to kind of dig deeper into some of these interesting trends that we're seeing in sports technology and, and kind of have engaging, interesting conversations with uh, folks that, that are really knowledgeable about the space and have have cool perspectives on it all. So what better way to do that than to have two fantastic guests who really are, are deeply uh, intertwined into to sports and technology uh, as entrepreneurs and investors. And so first, I'd like to introduce Vasu Kulkarni, the founder and CEO of Crossover. Crossover is a sports video analytics company. It's basically a service for coaches and athletes that allows them to upload teams, game film, have it broken down by analysts, and return to them in a format that you can search, sort, and share with your team and staff. Crossover basically acts as a video coordinator for teams and provides them with all the valuable data they need to understand their performance. Along with Vasu, we're joined by Deepin Parrick, who's a partner at Courtside Ventures and a venture partner at Interplay Ventures. Courtside VC, which Vasu and Deepin run together, invests in early stage founders that are transforming sports technology and media industries. Deepin is also an entrepreneur in his own right, having worked on a number of early stage sports tech startups in the past. He's also a founder of a fantastic sports tech meetup group here in New York called NYBC Sports. Thank you guys for being here today. Yeah, excited to be the guinea pigs. <laughs> yes, sir. Cool. Well, I guess at first I'd love uh, for you to give the the audience just a quick overview of kind of your background experience. Um, and maybe for, for each of you to start out, and Vasu, we can start with you. You know, Tell me, what's your first experience with sports? What about sports, even back to your, your childhood, told you, hey, listen, this is something that, that I'm deeply interested in. I want to uh, pursue a professional career uh, in sports, around sports. So my earliest memory is uh, Jordan Magic 91 Finals. I uh, was five years old, maybe four, depending on uh, time of year. And that that literally is like the most vivid memory that I have going back to uh, to remembering my days as uh, in, in my childhood days and basketball. After that, there's a lot more, but I can't really remember anything before that. But I remember watching Michael Jordan and thinking that this is the greatest sport in the world. This is the greatest thing in the world. This orange ball going through a, a little hoop. There's nothing better than that. 
And yeah, I come from a traditional Indian family. So even today, my parents always wonder, like, where the hell did you get this bug for basketball? Because we never played it at home. My parents were not big sports fans. No one in my family played sports. So everything was, hey, get back to, to studying. And for this one black sheep in the family to have ventured out from being an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist and to have figured out a way to turn sports into a career is something that that everyone always asks in my family is how the hell did this happen and no one really knows i mean it's just from the first time i saw a basketball i've been enamored with with the game and i got lucky enough to be able to build a career around it yeah and so so tell us a bit more about crossover and how it got started and how you you began to translate that love for basketball into building a business centered around the sport and now other sports? Well, I, I grew up in India, came over for college, actually thought I was going to play Division One basketball. So I show up at Penn as a as a 135-pound freshman, and I'm asking people, where's the basketball coach? I'm here to play basketball. And people are like, dude, are you freaking sure you're here to play basketball? I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I was, I'm, I'm the Kobe Bryant of Bangalore. I, I'm the captain of my high school team. I'm pretty sure I'm here to play ball. And people look at me like, dude, you must be smoking crack. And luckily, uh, I ended up finding the coach. And of course, he said, no chance. Like, you're, there's no way you can play Division One basketball. So ended up four years, protein shakes, a lot of pickup basketball. As a senior, there was a walk-on spot available. Got the spot. There was a JV team at Penn. Threw me on the JV team. I had one double-digit game, and I got the uh, the nickname, the Bangalore Blitz, on uh, on that night. And so from there... Uh, that was sort of the start to the whole thing because that was my experience getting to see what teams did for game day prep. I realized it was an incredibly arcane process that most college and high school teams were going through. It was all manual work. There was no software to manage any of this stuff. And again, I guess not to completely break the stereotype since I am Indian, I said, there's got to be software that can make this better. And that was a start of crossover. And we got pretty lucky in picking an idea that actually had product market fit pretty quickly. Every team that we showed the product to said, absolutely, that's something we would buy. And so we started with 45 teams in 2010-11. And this year, we'll be at over 10,000 teams that are using us around the world. That's fantastic. And I I think it's a theme I definitely want to touch on later on how you've drawn from personal experience in in finding that that product, that that market fit. Deepin, would love to kind of hear the same uh, background from you. You know, what was your first memory of sports? What about sports, even from childhood, really captured your imagination and, and you know, led you to, to think about pursuing it you know, kind of life- lifelong? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, always been a diehard, diehard football fan. And so, as far back as I can remember, I think the first game I recall watching was when I was five years old and the 49ers were playing the Bengals in the Super Bowl and I was in big Joe Montana fan. Um, you know, that, that kind of sparked my interest. My dad was a really big football fan. And so, uh, you know, I'm not to say I'm a bandwagoner by any means, but I was a Redskins fan for a handful of years, uh, before Baltimore got a team, which is my hometown. And so, uh, what really sparked my interest more than just, um, being at, you know, watching games was, uh, my folks had gotten tickets for the Ravens when they first came to Baltimore and it just kind of became an integral part of our family life. I mean, even to this day, uh, the first game of every single season, my entire family still goes back, um, for the first game, we all go watch it together. And, um, you know, there, 
when you're younger, you generally think of sports as being an athlete. You don't really see many other opportunities, maybe a you know on the broadcasting side, but not much beyond that. And so uh, I went to some uh, you know camp sports camps early on, met a few people who were involved in more the business side, um, like on the agency side, on the um, like management side of smaller teams, and that kind of sparked my interest to be involved going forward. Um, my path to sports was a little different in that uh, when I first moved to New York, I was working at uh, UBS on the finance side. Um, didn't get into sports until I tried to start my own company in the space, which um, ultimate goal was to build a CRM and fan engagement platform for professional and college sports teams. Um, things definitely did not go according to plan, uh, but it definitely opened up my eyes in terms of what worked and I think what didn't. Um, and having that year, year and a half spending time diving in and meeting a lot of folks was was incredibly helpful and also helped me launch uh, NYBC Sports, which um, brings together all the major sports leagues, teams, media companies and startups and up to around uh, 1,200 people in New York now. So that's what kind of led me to uh, the uh, the sports industry. And then having spent the last three years at Interplay Ventures, more on the incubation investment side. Uh, courtside was a great way to bring it all together. Yeah, so you're you're both involved in, in courtside. Uh, uh, if you could give me just some picture as to you know what what is the core of of courtside's investment thesis? What are what opportunities are they looking for, and you're looking for uh, to, to to invest in the ones that make money, ideally. <laughs> uh, but from our side, we started out. I mean, the whole thing came together about a year ago when Dan Gilbert, who's one of my biggest investors in Crossover, and I got talking, and we wanted to do something together on the venture side. He was seeing a lot of deal flow. He doesn't have a lot of time. You may have seen he's trying to buy Yahoo right now. And you know he's rebuilding the city of Detroit. He's got Quicken Loans. He's got the Cavs. There's so much going on in that world. And we were seeing so much deal flow specifically around technology companies and a lot that also has something to do with sports because normally they'll come to a team owner the way I did when I was trying to raise money that we decided to set up Courtside as a vehicle um, to kind of take over all of that deal flow and to make decisions on investing without him having to necessarily look at every deal personally. And so that was sort of the the genesis of the fund. And then when Deepin and I met, knowing his background, he was a perfect guy to join me as a partner at the fund. And what we really look for are, are technology companies that have some sort of application in sports. It doesn't have to be the primary application. It could be that they're going to get to sports a year or two from now. But our network between the two of us, uh, Dan Gilbert, our other uh, LPs in the fund, or, or WPP, which is, which controls 50% of the world's advertising, and then we also have a partnership with Bruin Sports Capital and a guy named George Pine, who's probably the greatest sports executive of the last several decades. I think all of us put together, we have an unparalleled network that we can use to leverage to our company's advantage. And so... Um, we're really looking for, for technologies that are defensible, something innovative, passionate entrepreneurs, but we want to be able to leverage our sports network to help them. Sure. And then I'm, I'm curious if you think about um, maybe some investments in the portfolio that may not have immediate apparent, uh, apparent overlap with sports, but, but you know, I think in your eyes after you've looked at them and spoken to them, there's, there's great potential. What are some that kind of fit in that category of something that maybe isn't 
out and out sports, but can address the, the marketplace. Yeah. So what, one investment in particular kind of stands out is a company called Unmute, which is in LA. Um, really smart founders, um, great co-investors involved. And, you know, what, what we've seen traditionally in kind of our first six months of investing is that uh, in several cases, more traditional VCs will come to us. And um, if there seems to be a sports application, maybe not immediately evident, but potentially down the road, uh, might pull us in as a strategic to help build out that vertical when the time is right. And so Unmute um, is a platform that effectively allows uh, for currently for anyone to have a conversation with others around the world. You can enter into a phone call. Um, with other people, different parts of the country and just random interactions right now, which is pretty powerful. But, you know, where we saw the opportunity was potentially around uh, more verticalized programming in sports. And so they have a really interesting technology um, that kind of takes conference calling to the next level, but allows potentially down the road for athletes instead of hosting regular radio shows to do it on unmute. Uh, people who are doing pregame and postgame press conferences to leverage on mute platform, uh, potentially even alternative commentating um, to games. And so that was an area where we didn't necessarily, it's by no means a sports company, but uh, we thought we could be very helpful from the sports side uh, when the time came. So certainly you guys see a lot of different sports, sports related startup ideas come through, come across your desk. Um, what are the characteristics and qualities of the ones that uh, y- you do fund, uh, and what are some of the characteristics and qualities of the ones that you you tend to pass on? If they're shared characteristics, characteristics amongst those two groups, yeah, the ones we like definitely a shorter list. Uh, there's there are a lot of people that come to us with sports ideas, and I mean a ton of them pretty much instantly. We just know from our past experience that it doesn't have a shot, and you know examples are another recruiting platform. I mean, there's just too many websites out there trying to help high school kids get into college. And everyone thinks they have yet another spin on this. It's not going to work. People who are trying to sell things uh, purely to pro sports teams. So whether it's like Deepin's failed idea, which he clearly learned so much from, of trying to sell a CRM or another uh, fan engagement platform to just 30 NBA teams, 30 NFL teams. There's a whole, there's the entire universe is 120 teams in America. If you can't build a massive business with, with 120, you just can't, you can't do it. And so if you try to build something that only caters to a small subset like that, you're in trouble. Not that you can't build a nice lifestyle business. And I think that's the difference that entrepreneurs need to understand is you can build a business selling something to 120 teams for $30,000, $50,000, $100,000 a year, but you can't build a venture-backed business doing that. And that's the real difference. And so if you're coming to us and asking us to fund your company you should realize beforehand what is venture fundable and what isn't. And there's nothing wrong with building a nice lifestyle business. Uh, most of America's millionaires are people that build lifestyle businesses, not ones that have massive venture-backed businesses that exit for billions. And, uh, and so I think there's, there's a, lot, a lot of those companies out there where guys should just be trying to bootstrap and trying to build something small something that pays the bills and they have a lot of fun doing. The thing, the one thing I will say of everyone that comes to us in the sports world is they're all massive sports fans. They all probably played a sport. They're very passionate people, but passion doesn't necessarily translate into a massively scalable business. And, uh, and so those are, you know, those are some of the things that we don't like. And I think Deepin can talk to stuff that we do like. 
to add to that, I think, you know, team is extremely important to us. Everyone says that. Uh, but being realistic in kind of the assumptions and what a business can be, I think, kind of signifies the um, kind of research, the type of experience, industry expertise that the team has. Um, to Vasu's point of how, how many teams are actually out there, you can build a really nice company without ever having to raise venture funding. Uh, but it's becoming increasingly harder just not only selling to teams, but teams are getting hit up by hundreds of different startups on a regular basis. And so we're constantly looking for differentiation in the market. Um, so, you know, we invested in a company called GameCo. So esports falls under a threshold for sports. Um, you know, they build a really interesting uh, video game terminal that they can deploy in casinos for real money. And so, you know, the thought process there was really solid team previously had been involved in the gaming world. Um, there was a fundamental need that we had, you know, personally seen through uh, our LPs relations that casinos are looking for ways to kind of curtail the downturn of slots, right, as it's an aging demographic. And so, um, you know, this was a great opportunity to bring in a younger millennial audience um, to, you know, rather than walking straight to the table games, straight to the clubs to stop and maybe play a game or two and uh, build a new audience in a new uh, arena. And so stuff like that is really intriguing to us. We've also uh, invested uh, along some great, alongside some great folks in Drone Racing League. Um, you know, that's one where we really uh, believed in the founder, uh, the CEO. And, you know, they build an interesting dynamic where they're, you know, fully vertically integrated on everything from, building the drone all the way through to owning the media. Uh, we thought it was a pretty rare opportunity. So, you know, for us, uh, as Vasu said, market size is really important. Um, we don't necessarily need to see a $1 billion or $5 billion exit. Um, we would like to see that the total addressable market is large enough um, that multiple players can be involved, um, as opposed to just the winner-take-all, which in sports is generally pretty difficult because the fragmentation and you know the u.s is very different than europe and asia um you know i'd say another thing that kind of worries us a bit is uh the rights issue in the earlier stages so um you know leagues obviously have quite a stronghold when it comes to logos and rights and so uh, early stage companies are thinking about you know going to leagues and approaching them and trying to cut out a deal extremely expensive and so uh, i think it's a reflection on the team to see how you know thoughtful they can be around finances but also more importantly how do you work around um the rights issues at least initially until you can get to a point where you're a larger business and you can pay for it sure i think you the two of the properties you mentioned both are addressing um in the case of esports and, and drone racing very new content categories very new sports categories um, and I think you mentioned the fact that a lot of the, the legacy sports, uh, there are rights and IP issues. Would you say almost as a rule that most of the most exciting, intriguing opportunities are coming through new and emerging sports uh, because the existing sports, kind of the, the flows of, of capital are kind of locked around broadcast or IP or merchandise, et cetera? Or do you still think there's there's room to, to run inside those contracts? I mean, I, I mean, you can dive in, but I'll... I'll say I think there is definitely a room. 
Um, the way we kind of think about the fund from a really high level perspective is investing alongside the disintermediation of content creation, content distribution, and content consumption. And so when you think of content creation, um, it could be a more traditional sport, but just perhaps a, a less expensive way to film it or potentially a less expensive way to distribute it or a more innovative way to view it, right? Rather than having to watch Twitter's deal with the NFL, which is interesting. Um, you know, that was something that was intriguing to us because kind of gives earlier stage companies a little bit more of a strong, I think, down the road um, where leagues are ultimately open. Twitter's obviously a big public company, but you saw YouTube just signed a more expanded deal with the NFL. Um, I think that opens up a lot of opportunities for earlier stage companies to leverage the YouTubes and the Twitters of the world to create um, their initial stronghold in the sports space and then well, we actually have an example, another company to plug. Hooray. Uh, we invest in a company called Tap that is actually bringing the NBA to other countries. So there's another example of a way that we've taken traditional sports and we're making it available in countries like India where you don't traditionally have credit cards. So credit cards are hard to come by in India, but people are cash rich. And so what Tap does is it allows you to go into a retailer, buy a prepaid card with cash, and then you can come back and redeem it on your computer to watch a single NBA game. And that's actually live right now. And uh, we've got we've got people using it for the NBA playoffs in a country where watching an NBA game traditionally is pretty hard. So I think I think that's an example. And then I think the other big example with uh, with traditional sports and again, not to plug ourselves, but I think crossover is a great example of how we've been able to find a large market in traditional sports going away from your 120 NBA teams and rather focusing on the 36,000 high schools and 4,000 colleges in America. That's a massive market. Youth sports is a significantly more exciting opportunity today than going after pro sports. No, certainly, I think it's it's fascinating and 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 certainly great success stories, kind of branching beyond the, the big four. You know, you mentioned you can build up great business bootstrapping and 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 pulling uh, kind of pulling yourself up from that standpoint. What are the businesses in sports that have, that have done that? That in sports technology, they've done that, that that you really admire. Who's bootstrapped? I think a lot of I don't think I've seen too many technology companies bootstrapped. But what I will say is that. Events businesses are a perfect example in sports of guys that are printing cash. I mean, if you run a summer camp for for basketball players, you are making so much money, it's silly. And there's no technology involved there. That's literally, you go and you get a thousand volunteer interns to come work your summer camp and you have parents paying a thousand dollars for a week to send their kid away to basketball camp. All of those businesses are bootstrapped and they're doing incredibly well. I think from a technology standpoint, I'd be hard-pressed to think of a company that's actually bootstrapped its way into being successful. Most of them have actually raised capital. And I think that's the problem is that many of them manage to raise capital and they're probably not going to be able to return it or they're not going to at least return a multiple that's going to make any investors happy. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. Um, You know, we... We're often intrigued, you know, being a technology fund, we see companies that are doing phenomenally well on more of the services side. You look at agencies, um, you look at events businesses, Vasu mentioned, um, you know, there are certainly companies out there. Uh, A lot of times we see services companies trying to shift over to being a product company 
because they think there's a larger potential outcome or that way they can sell the teams. I mean, we're, we're firm believers in the fact that majority of companies probably should not raise venture money. Um, and a lot of those companies can still be wildly successful. And so uh, from a product standpoint, I'm not really sure. Um, I think media companies have a chance. I think there's probably a handful of success stories in the media space of guys that haven't raised any serious funding. They start out with a website and them writing articles and they move into potentially podcast and they move into writing, creating video content, all of which can essentially be done if you're a founder with yourself and a buddy holding an iPhone today. And as you build up that audience, eventually you get sponsorship, you get uh, you plug into an ad network and you start to generate some revenue. And I think there's a lot more examples of media companies that have been bootstrapped than sort of tech and product companies because those are, those are harder to bootstrap. I mean, you do need engineers and engineers are not cheap today. Yeah. That's really like Barstool Sports is probably a very good example sure, of that. Yeah, yeah um, Barstool Sports. And, you know, for us, I mean, we both learn a ton as we see new companies. So whether it's a fit for us or not, um, you know, we, we like talking to as many companies, seeing as many companies as possible. I think that helps kind of refine our focus. Um, the amount of innovation that's happening in sports or maybe not necessarily traditional sports, but ancillary, um, is really, really, uh, amazing at this point in time. And, you know, whether it's drones or VR or esports or even more traditional sports, um, technology is playing a much, much larger role in there. And I think we're going to see a lot more winners coming out of there. Maybe not someone selling directly to a team, but maybe a new video distribution platform um, or VR companies that are more focused on the sports um, landscape as opposed to being more general. So uh, certainly VR is, a, is an area in technology and in technology investing that's gotten a lot of attention, a lot of buzz. And, uh, you know, I think many of posited that the applications for VR and sports are very obvious, right? To bring a, a perspective of the game uh, as if you were there right right to your couch. So uh, very curious. I'm, I'm sure you've been pitched by VR companies that are uh, that are, are trying to, to provide great sports content. Um, what's your perspective and viewpoint on it? Do you think it's realistic that we'll all be sitting on a couch one day um, staring into a VR headset or is it unlikely and kind of what are you seeing and where do you think that's going if you had to handicap it now? Deepin and I have this conversation every <laughs> single day and we I don't know I can't I don't even know at this point whether we agree to disagree or not. But my viewpoint is that sports are inherently social and that I do not believe that people will be sitting in their living room with a giant contraption strapped to their head looking like a moron watching a two hour long NBA game. I just don't believe it. Um, but, but that said today, I think that VR has applications in industry for training. I see why it's better to strap on a headset and pretend to be a quarterback getting rushed as opposed to actually being on a football field and taking a hit to your body. If you can do the same thing in virtual reality and train your brain instead of having to take the hits on the field, I think it makes complete sense. From a consumer standpoint, I don't believe that VR is there yet. Um, but I believe that as form factor changes and as VR and AR probably converge into being more AR than VR... I think you've got some pretty interesting things that can happen. And I had a conversation with FIFA recently, not about their issues, but more around what they think about technology. And they said something interesting to me. They said, not this coming World Cup, but probably eight years from now, they think that if the World Cup is being played in Tokyo, 
they will sell tickets to stadiums in the U.S. where fans can go and sit there with some sort of augmented reality glasses on and actually watch the World Cup in front of them on the field as though it were happening live in front of them, but it would essentially be augmented reality with the with the match actually taking place around the world. And I think that is freaking cool. I don't know if it's realistic to think it's going to happen in the next decade, but I think there are some companies like Magic Leap that have been doing some really cool things in, in that space. So that's where I think it's going. I think VR and AR are going to converge. I'm not a believer in sitting on your couch with a giant headset on your face, though. Yeah, we, we disagree a little on this. Um, I also do fundamentally believe that no one is going to sit there for a full three-hour football game and watch it in VR. Um, I think just as majority of other technologies have gone through a similar process, it's a progression. And so people, I think, will – right now, it's a bit more novelty because there are not many options out there when it comes to being able to watch a lot of content. As we see the kind of the proliferation of VR content as it becomes more engulfed in your traditional media experiences, potentially within a broadcaster's app or on their website, um, I think you'll see more people engaged. Um, again, probably not going to be sitting there for an entire game, but I could easily see an instance where you receive a notification on your phone and it says, hey, two minutes left in this game, put on your headset. Or, hey, we have a special, you know, there's a special five minutes uh, clip put on your headset. I think it's going to be much more fragmented initially. Um, you know, we're heavily looking at a VR company right now. And uh, w- one thing that's really stood out for us is um, this is a super, super new space, no matter how anyone cuts it. But there is real long term adoption. Um, from either VR and then over time from an AR standpoint. Um, and sports is a natural frontier. Um, and, you know, you, you can look at the total size of VR that people are projecting. More important to us, though, is how do you create um, a more realistic dynamic, right? How do you not sit next to someone with a headset on, but more communication taking place? So that's really what we've been focusing on. But to Vasu's point, Uh, we're certainly bullish on augmented reality and uh, we're looking for companies that, you know, may initially start out on the VR side, but have a, uh, you know, a stronghold or at least a competitive advantage over to uh, the AR front. What I, what I do think is interesting is though, there's about two and a half billion people in India and China that have never, ever watched an NBA game live in a stadium and possibly for their entire lives never will. And if a technology like virtual reality can somehow put little Indian boy or Chinese basketball player courtside for two hours of their lives and actually be able to experience an NBA game the way all of us do, I think that's a powerful marketing tool for a sports league. And I think, again, so that's where things start to get interesting for VR is what can you do internationally and how can you give people experiences that the rest of us can sort of take for granted already. Cool. only have a little bit more time, so I wanted to, to see if uh, you guys might be able to give some advice for, for our listeners, right? And, and so the first thing is, if you're a sports entrepreneur, you're thinking about building a business uh, that centers around sports and, and, and technology, um, what's the piece of advice you'd give them? What would you tell them? What would you um, send them off as they go down that road uh, starting out? Yeah, I would a uh, couple things. One is 
Um, don't feel compelled to have to take venture money in order to build a business. A lot of successful companies have been built without ever having to take uh, traditional venture money. Next, I would say prove out the business at least from a you know a small scale in order to get uh, folks interested, right? Especially in sports when there's just million, hundreds of millions of fans globally. Um, if you're building a social platform around sports, it's tough if you come to someone and say, hey, I have about 500 active users, 1,000 active users. So try to do whatever you can to be very capital efficient and get to a point where um, you have core users. And then uh, one other thing I'd say is for us, and I'm sure majority of other investors, it's not about the total number of users. It's about engagement. So really, really focus on your core user base, your power users, um, to find a way where they can't live without your product, right? The day you get that type of um, association, I think you're in a completely different league. Everyone views you differently, and you know there's sustainability behind your model. I'd start by saying, get the hell out of New York or San Francisco. Uh, the, the cost of running a company here is so outrageous that I, I always say, I think I could have gotten my company to where it is today on about a third of the capital that we've raised. So I've, we've raised $28 million. I think I estimate for about 10, if I were in Kansas City, if I were in Austin and Boulder, we could have gotten to literally exactly where we are. I think there are certain industries you want to be in New York or San Francisco. If you're building a mass consumer product, go to Silicon Valley. It's going to make a difference. If you're in ad tech, fintech, stay in New York. It'll probably make a difference. But outside of that, if you're building a sports company, I really don't think you need to be in either of these two locations. And you can be far more capital efficient. It's a lot more easier to bootstrap if you're not here. I mean, you can't live in New York and bootstrap. It's really, really hard. Um, so I think that's the biggest takeaway that I've I've learned over the last couple of years is is location actually does matter. But it matters not for the reason you think. It matters because of how much capital you'll have to raise, not because you can raise the capital because you're in certain places. I think there's been plenty of successful companies that have come out of places like Kansas City and, and Texas and whatnot. Um, and so that, and I think the last piece, if you're if you're trying to build a sports company, I think a lot of people are doing it because they're passionate and that's good. And do it because you're passionate about sports and you get to do something you love every day. Don't do it because you think you're going to become a billionaire. I think we've yet to see a massive sports exit. I think uh, Bleacher Report has really been the largest till date, and that was what 125, 150 million. I think SeatGeek's going to be the biggest one. We'll see. Still t time to go, <laughs> but um, but but thank you guys, and, and thank you for for joining us. Really uh, honored to to have you and have you share some of uh, your insight and, and wisdom. So sure. yeah, and and I'll say, I mean. Like I said earlier, we're, we'd love to talk to any companies that are uh, in the sports world, whether it's, you know, really involved in sports, even if it is selling the teams, you know, we learn as much from companies um, just by taking a look at them. So courtsidevc.com and uh, both of our email addresses are on there where uh, we always respond back to everyone. So uh, feel free to reach out anytime. And on Twitter, um, at at Deepin Parikh. No one's going to follow you, but if you want nonstop Steph Curry love, at Vasu. Tell him who has more followers real quick. I was late, I was late to Twitter. <laughs> I'm catching up, though. Thanks for having cool. us. Man. Thank you, guys. 
Thank you for listening to the pilot episode of the On Deck podcast. And thanks to Vasu and Deepin for joining us. We'll be back in just a couple weeks with more great guests and conversation. Until then, you can follow at SeatGeek on Twitter to make sure that you stay in the loop for updates. And if you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing ondeck at seatgeek.com. 